The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I try to make the details as authentic as I possibly can, because there's always going to be somebody out there who knows the details of that particular thing and will happily point out if you get it wrong. And so I try to make that stuff feel as real as possible, because a lot of the action in my books is very sort of heightened reality. And, you know, you might look at it and go, well, how, you know, he'd never be able to survive that car accident. And I have my hero kind of get out of the car and dust himself off and, you know, go off and do some more action pack stuff. And I think what the deal I kind of make is, is if, if you if you let me get away with kind of crazy wild action, I'll make sure that absolutely everything is 100% accurate, or at least as close as I can make it. Greetings, scribes. You're tuned in to The Writer Files, and I'm still your humble host, Kelton Reed, sending you well wishes and safe passage during this time of global uncertainty. This week, I was honored to be joined by award-winning New York Times, Sunday Times, and Amazon number one bestselling author, James Swallow, who spoke with me about his own superhero origin story, how he found success channeling his anger, and the most important lessons he's learned along the way. James is a former journalist and BAFTA-nominated scriptwriter who's worked in video games, TV, and radio. A prolific author of over 50 books, who's written sci-fi for storied franchises including Star Trek, Doctor Who, and Stargate, is best known for his espionage thrillers. His Mark Dane series, with over three-quarters of a million books in print worldwide, includes novels Nomad, Exile, Ghost, Shadow, and his forthcoming novel Rogue, the fifth in the best-selling series featuring Britain's answer to Jason Bourne, out May 28, 2020. In this file, James and I discussed why the pandemic feels like almost the end of the world. The renaissance of high-speed, low-drag thrillers inspired by the 80s. His theories on the fallibility of action heroes. How his journalism and TV writing experience set him up for success. Why writers are always writing, even when they're not. His greatest influences, and much more. Be safe out there. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. 
Also, The Writer Files is now available on Alexa because Apple Podcasts are available on Alexa-enabled Amazon devices in the United States. Now all I have to do is say, Alexa, play The Writer Files on Apple Podcasts and she'll probably grant your wish. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back. And we are rolling once again on the pandemic edition of The Writer Files with uh, an honored guest. I've got best-selling author James Swallow popping in today. Thanks for taking time to uh, wrap with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, I wanted to ask you, I know you're, I think you're on uh, London time over there, but um, yeah, uh, as you sit on the other side of the pond, uh, how are things? It's pretty crazy, man. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's weird for me as a writer, as somebody who's kind of pretty much a shut in anyway, right? You know, it's people are saying about how they're having to modify their lifestyle to be uh, in the house all the time. And that's pretty much the way I work anyway, because I have an office in my home and I'm used to sitting in front of my computer and, and having like the kind of six foot commute from, from my bedroom to my office. So it's kind of not of a, it's not a big modification of my lifestyle for me to kind of continue <laughs> with this. Um, but my wife is working from home for the very first time and we've converted our dining room to a, an office for her. And it's been an interesting transition for me to see how she's handling it. I love the fact that she's in the house now because I get to see more of her, which is great. Um, but she's had to work hard to kind of change gears. And I'm, I'm talking to a lot of my friends who would kind of have regular normal jobs like normal people. And some of them are finding it easy and some of them are finding it hard. But the weirdest thing for me has been going out on the street. Um, going to the store or just going out for a bit of exercise and there's a kind of weird pre-apocalyptic kind of vibe to it you know it's not quite 28 <laughs> days later yet but but it feels a little odd it just the the world feels weirdly empty even though it isn't it's just everybody staying home it's strange it's, it's crazy times yeah it is you know i found uh very interesting a recent interview um with author Stephen King on uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. You know, she does she does these uh, fantastic interviews with authors also. And, um, she, you know, she, I think she was asking Stephen King, you know, how does it feel when people say to you, you know, this, I feel like I'm living in a Stephen King movie. You know, I think, I think his book, The Stand, was uh, kind mm -hmm. of about, kind of about that, uh, you know, worldwide uh, apocalyptic plague or whatever it was. But, um, anyway, this, this show is not about Stephen King. This is about James Swallow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it does have a weird feeling. Do you, are you as stressed out as I am leaving the house to go, like just to go do normal things like that shopping trip, which is. Yeah, a little bit, you know, there's, there's kind of like a, you know, there's always like that background radiation of stress that everybody suffers in the modern world, right? You know, when you're worrying about paying your bills or just doing normal stuff, we yeah. all have that, right? You know, we all have that. And it feels like that dial's been just turned up a little bit more, you know, so maybe you're not sleeping quite as well, you know, maybe your stomach's not as settled as it normally is. And it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like the end of the world, but it, but it just feels like, you know, it's not the end of the world for me because right now me and my family and all the people I love and care about are all doing okay. But I feel like the the circle of bad stuff is getting closer because I'm starting to hear from 
friends of friends, people I don't know, but who are like two or three maybe kind of cer- Kevin Bacon circles away from me, right? <laughs> I'm hearing about, like, oh, that guy that you knew, you know, uh, his, you know he, his family member died of this. Or mm. this person that you know, a guy, a, you know the guy who knows a guy who's gone through it and has come out of it the other side. And it feels uncomfortably close. Like, you know, this thing is just over the horizon from, from where my personal kind of life is sitting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, who, you know, you can't, you can't turn a blind eye to that. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, you've written some action-packed espionage thrillers, obviously. Um, you're lauded an epic uh, Mark Dane series, which we'll get into a little bit. Um, that best-selling series. And then uh, quite a bit of like storied science fiction uh, stuff. So you're no, you're no stranger to uh, the sci-fi genre and kind of uh, pre- and post-apocalyptic subject matter. Uh, which I want to talk about, but um, yeah, let's uh, dig kind of dig back into your uh, superhero origin story, as <laughs> we do with with so many authors, and and kind of uh, yeah, tell us how you got to be, you know, a New York Times bestselling author, Sunday Times, etc. Well, you know, if you want to dial, I mean, if you want to dial, let's go <laughs> set the wayback machine. We go right yeah. to my, my, my beginning of my origin story. And it's funny you were talking about that today because just on Twitter, somebody was posting today um, some cover artwork from a, ni- a mid-1980s fanzine that I had contributed to. Like, mm-hmm. And we are talking photocopied, you know, put together with kind of sticky tape and stuff on somebody's kitchen table kind of level of publication <laughs> nice and and it was really interesting to look at that and i thought wow that's that's kind of part of my origins right there is this, so at the, at the very beginning when i was just like a you know i was in my in my sort of teens i was writing for these kind of homebrew fanzines about film and tv uh, comic books video games japanese animation anything that basically was interesting to me i was kind of out there trying to learn anything more i was trying to get my fingers into those fandoms and of course when you have people who are interested in those sort of things, they create fanzines and they create their own sort of online sort of stuff nowadays. But, but back then it was fanzines and mailing lists and that kind of stuff. So I was contributing to that and that was my embryonic kind of experience of writing. After a while, I found that I could parlay that into people actually paying me money to do it. And so I started writing for professionally published magazines, again, doing film reviews, articles and what have you. And that was that was the beginning of my professional writing career. I always had this hankering to to write prose and to and to write scripts. And for a little while, I, I tried to kind of get my foot in the door writing for for U.S. Um, TV shows. And I went out to California. I was pitching on uh, a lot of the Star Trek TV shows that were airing at the time, and I got um, sold a couple of pitches to those shows. But I didn't really make you know I, I didn't really make a go of it as well as I would have liked. So. I came back to the UK and I continued my career as a, as a journalist. Uh, but I had this idea in the back of my head, you know, maybe I can write prose, maybe I can write long form fiction because as much as I liked doing journalism, it really felt certainly entertainment journalism really felt like very disposable is, you know, you'd write a feature about uh, a particular creator or a comic book or a movie or something. And, you know, you go into the weeds and you'd write a great piece about it. And then like the month later it would be kind of gone. And mm-hmm. it would just, it wouldn't touch the sides, right? You know, people would read it and enjoy it. And then there, there was no permanence to it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write something that I could, you know, I write a thing and I, a year later I could point to something on a shelf and go, well, there's a book with my name on it. There's, there's an object that has a degree of kind of permanence to it. 
And while I was thinking about doing this, there was this kind of uh, long night, night of the long knives where like four magazines I was working for all got shut down in the space of like three months. Hmm. And so I was thinking about jumping and I got pushed. So I had no other choice but to try and find myself another avenue to write. And, and so that's, I started writing uh, and I did some um, young adult steampunk westerns for, hmm. uh, for, a, for a YA um, publisher here in the UK. And that got me my first book credit. And once I had a book credit, once somebody had actually taken a chance on me, you know, I was in a position that I could go to other publishers and say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a proven quantity now. Would you like to hire me to write for you? And, and that was that started the ball rolling um, on my writing career, writing tie-in fiction and, and genre fiction. And, and that served me well for quite a while. Uh, and as much as I enjoyed doing that, I kind of got sort of 10 years into it and I thought, I, I feel like I need to do something different now. I feel like I need to kind of look at some new territories and, and look for stuff that will expand me and stretch me as a writer. So I did work in the video game industry and I decided to write something in a different genre. And that led me into writing the sort of modern espionage action thriller, which is some, there's, there's a, that's a genre that I love as much as I love uh, sci-fi. Yeah, it's interesting that how those concentric circles kind of cross there. And yeah, so speaking of that genre, I know that you're working presently on um, kind of a follow-up to a book that's not been released yet as of uh, this recording. Let's talk a little bit about the ser- the Mark Dance series. And okay. it's been described, you know, it's sold... Gosh, I mean, so many copies in, in print around the globe, I guess, uh, at last count, 750,000 copies. But they're described as uh, fast-paced action thrillers featuring a former MI6 field officer turned uh, private security operative, right? Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious about kind of going back, you know, I guess I guess the, the first in that series is Nomad, right? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah kind of uh what inspired the the series you know you you talk about um kind of loving some of some of these uh uh classics and and you know um we've interviewed quite a few thriller writers but this series in particular kind of where did it get its genesis and then yeah talk about kind of how that's grown and and found successes okay cool yeah, I, I often say that um, one of the prime motivators for me to, to write stuff is about what pisses me off. So, you know, I, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm angry about something, when I'm annoyed about something, that's often the fuel for me. Uh, and I take that kind of negative energy you know, and, and I try and channel it into, into making it something that propels me forward as a writer, you know. So one of the things I was kind of a little bit pissed off about as a writer was – the, the kind of thrillers that I liked, the ones that I'd read in the 80s and the 90s, that these sort of high-speed, low-drag, you know, the beach read, the airport novel, right? You know, those books that I'd really had a lot of fun reading, hmm. they, they just weren't around anymore. And, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, people have often said, you know, you, you write the thing that you would like to read. Is that, you know, if, the, if a book doesn't exist, you end up, if you're a writer and you want to write, you want to read that book, it's not there, you end up writing it yourself. And that was where I was coming from. And I was looking for these books and I was reading a lot of the older novels from, from back in that kind of golden age, as I think of it. And I was thinking to myself, why is nobody doing this now? Why is nobody doing this kind of book, but kind of through the lens of a 21st century, technically savvy, 
techno thriller? Why are we not? Why do we not have books like that? And what we were seeing in the thriller space, certainly, uh, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's as true in the U.S., but it's certainly true in the U.K. It was thrillers were seen as something that had to be a period piece. So you were seeing kind of books that were set in the '60s or in the Second World War, and it was like you want to write mm. a thriller. You want to, that's the that's where you write that. And I didn't want to do that story. I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to do ripped from the headlines. I wanted to talk about technology and the things that fascinate me personally and how that, you know, how technology has changed the nature of espionage in the world. You know, the post Snowden, post WikiLeaks mm. kind of world of technology and espionage. And I didn't see anybody talking about that. And that's the that's the arena I wanted to to tackle. So I was pitching. I I I was writing other stuff, and in between I was kind of going away and every every couple of months writing a little bit more Nomad. And it took me about three years to write the whole book in between doing other jobs. And when I finally got the thing finished, I spent a year in the wilderness. I could not get arrested with this book. And I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, after all the, you know, I'd written a lot of fiction in sci-fi, and I thought surely that would get me kind of at least a second look, right? It's not like mm. I was a newbie who'd never done anything. Arrogantly, I assumed, oh, yeah, I'm sure I'll be able to walk in and go, well, I'm a proper writer. You should look at me. But it was like starting again <laughs> from scratch. Yeah. It was people were saying to me, well, that sci-fi stuff you did, that's great. Uh, why don't you go away and write some more of that? And I, no, no. I don't want to write. You know, I want to try something a little different. I want to stretch myself. So I would get editors say to me, you know, why aren't you doing something science fictional? Or why, why can you make this thriller novel? Can you make it sci-fi? Can you put some flying saucers and, and, and aliens and weird <laughs> stuff in it? I was like, I don't, you know, if I wanted to write that book, that's the book I would have written. I don't want to do that. So I had that kind of energy, you know, coming to me. People saying, you know, we don't want this kind of book. And I'm like, well, I want this is the book I want to write. So stand or fall, it's going to be the kind of thing that it is. And it, and so a lot of people were saying to me, this this kind of thing is not popular. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe I've just timed this wrong. And, uh, you know, uh, and so I spent this year trying to trying and failing to sell it. And then as luck would have it, um, Terry Hayes came along with a book called I Am Pilgrim, which is this massive doorstop of a of a book that is quint the quintessential action-packed beach read mm. and i think it was harper collins published it in the uk somebody took a chance on him that book came out and suddenly that everybody woke up to the fact that oh there is an appetite for this kind of thriller we've been telling everybody for the last two or three years you don't want to read this actually no people do want to read it mm. and so, and suddenly there's this explosion uh, in all of these kind of books, and you get uh, terrific you know, people like uh, like not just me, but people like Greg Hurwitz and uh, Frank Gardner, Kimberly Howe, um, uh, Andrew Reed, all of these really talented writers writing these kind of high octane thrillers. All of us just kind of came out of the woodwork and said, "Well, you know, if you like Pilgrim, there's definitely an audience for that. Here's an opportunity to tell these sort of books." And so it was kind of being being kind of in the right place at the right time. So part of the motivation came from that. The other motivation. Before and before I even got into the sort of point where I'm actually finishing the book and selling it, was this theory that I developed about action heroes. I'm somebody who consumes action thriller stories in all different mediums, and one of the things I always noticed was a lot of these heroes just the kind of these they're they're exciting and they're fun, but they're they're sort of Teflon coated, bulletproof people, and they kind of go through every scenario that they're put into. And you never really feel like they're not going to come out the other side. They might get, you know, their asses kicked a little bit, but there's never a moment where you think, oh, he's not going to get out of that. Yeah. And, and, and as much fun as it is to see a hero kind of swan into a situation and, you know, you know, effortlessly kind of deal with the bad guys, that is kind of cool. But it mm -hmm. didn't feel real to me. 
And I wanted to write about somebody who who had to kind of run to keep up a little bit, because to me that feels more real. Is I talk about heroes from my, two of my favorite movie heroes, though I say Indiana Jones and John McClane. Mm-hmm. You look at two, you look at those two guys in the iconic movies in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Die Hard, the first movies in the series. You look at them, their characters. You know, uh, Indy's like a, he's he's a capable guy and he's smart, but he's not the strongest guy in the room. And he does occasionally screw up. And sometimes he gets through stuff by the skin of his teeth. But we love him all the more for it. And it's the same thing with John McClane in Die Hard. He's just a regular cop. He's just trying to sort out his relationship with his wife. And he's completely out of his depth when these terrorists take over this building. But he fights his way through to the end. And he comes out at the end bloody but unbound. And Mm -hmm. I love those kind of characters because I feel closer to them than I would do to somebody as, like, perfectly cool and suave as James Bond or somebody like, you know, as tough as Jack Reacher. I'm never going to be a guy like that. <laughs> but I feel but I feel a lot closer to somebody like like Indy or McLean, right? Because they they feel like regular guys who they have their skills, of course, but but they don't feel they feel fallible. So I wanted to write about a hero who was fallible. I wanted to write like I say a guy who had to run to keep up. He's he's not the toughest guy in the room. He's not the quickest shot. He doesn't always have a great quip, right? He's he's a bit more of an everyman sort of character. And I think we hadn't seen a, an action thriller hero like that since the, you know, Jack Ryan in the, in the Tom Clancy novels. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to play around with that. And there's, you know, there's always the trope you get in these kind of movies and TV shows. You get the guy in the van. There's always the, there's always the door kicker and the trigger puller who's out there, you know, shooting people and doing stuff. And he's on the radio to some guy <laughs> back at headquarters. And, and that guy's on the, com- you know, the guy's on the computer hacking something for him or he's, you know, breaking into the, <laughs> the uh, the system and he's going oh you need to do this and you need to do that and you get the you get the sense that the guy who's the carrying the gun probably wouldn't know how to kind of set up his wi-fi right but but the guy in the van would know how to do that and when i when i kind of <laughs> crystallized this idea i thought what i want to do is i want to take the guy in the van and make him do the other guy's job so i take a guy who's used to sitting behind a computer screen you know hacking stuff and not really not really quite in harm's way and put him in harm's way and mm. take him out of his comfort zone and say, now you have to be the door kicker and the trigger puller. It's, how does that affect you? And that was the genesis of the character of Mark Dana. Once I had that idea, the rest of the story just kind of accreted around him. And that was that was my primary motivation. Interesting. That's really cool. Well, um, yeah, that's, that's a... Uh, I think listeners are going to get a lot out of that recipe because... Um, that's interesting because when you when you say the guy in the van, I think of uh, immediately Simon Pegg for some reason. Um, yeah, from Mich- yeah, Benji from Mission Impossible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is I've actually I described uh, uh, Mark Dana. I said if you drew a line between Benji Dunn and Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible movies, <laughs> there you Mark, go. Mark Dane hangs in the middle between those two guys. That's he's cool. not quite as nerdy as Benji, but he's not quite as sort of action oriented as, as Ethan Hunt, but he's somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction, And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. 
The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, um, of course we will uh, point at your uh, home base there and that is jswallow.com. I'll drop that link into the show notes and listeners can find um, pre-orders of the latest in that series and all of the all of the books are there. You can link to all that information um, under the books uh, menu there and find this fantastic series. And uh, I understand you are working on a follow-up to Rogue, which which is coming out uh, May 28th this year. But That's yeah, the plan, cor- coronavirus willing, hopefully. That, um, <laughs> yeah, oh uh, Rogue's, Rogue's the fifth book in our series that will be coming out here, as you say, at the end of May. Yeah. Um, and, and in the U.S., uh, Ghost, which is the third book in the series, is going to be released uh, towards the end of the year. Fantastic. And um, yeah, you can find all that information over at uh, jswallow.com and lots of great resources. And actually, there's some free, there's a free, uh, is that a novella or is that a... Uh... Yeah, that's right. It's just, um, I did that. For, my, my site launched last year and as a, as a kind of giveaway to get people to come back, I did an episodic uh, short story collection thing and I, nice. and I built it into a novella. So yeah, that's called Rough Air. That's that's kind of a, a, a sampler. So if you're interested in the character and you want to get a flavor for what the Mark Dane series is, go ahead and, and, and download that and read it on your, on your e-reading device and, and yeah. see if you like it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think these are great novels to dig into right now while you've got uh, the time from some escapism. But yeah, I mean, it's been described as, um, you know, Britain's answer to Jason Bourne. And um, I did recently also interview uh, the heir to Ludlum's um, legacy over there. Joshua Hood is um, now writing... Um, for that series, which is kind of interesting, but, uh, yeah. And a little bond of course, but as you said, um, the guy in the van <laughs> being put, um, in some interesting situations, but yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about your process as, you know, I know we're all navigating this, this new strange world of, uh, pandemic. How are you? Yeah. So you've got more distractions, but probably, um, more time 
for writing? How are you structuring your your productivity? How are you structuring or architecting kind of sitting down and getting pages? Well, I kind of, I come from a a kind of blue collar working class background. Um, so like my dad was an engineer, my mother was a nurse at school, you know. So I don't come from uh, the the kind of traditional shall we say, sort of like slightly artistic, slightly creative background that, you know, a lot of writers come from. And I think the the lesson I learned from my family was to approach everything that you do for a living as craft more, more than art. You know, so I consider myself a craftsman more than an artist. And what that means is backside in chair at 9 a.m., you know, get your ass in a chair and start writing. Hmm. Hands on, backside in chair, hands on keyboard, right? Off you go. <laughs> and I don't wait for the muse to strike. You know, I don't stand at, in, in the hallway, you know, looking out of the window of my garret, waiting for sort of inspiration. <laughs> I, I strike, you know, I'm like, you know, you, you got to do, you got to do 2000 words today, get your ass in the chair and write it. And I do that every day. And I treat it like a nine to five job. You know, I get up at nine o'clock, I do my emails, I start writing, I take a lunch break, I finish, you know, when, when my wife comes home from work or when she finishes work at the moment. Um, and I do, I do uh, a five to six day week. And that, which has now kind of changed to more or less a seven-day week because you know, I'm not really kind of leaving the house that much. So I'm like, okay, I've got more time at home. I might as well just like, you know, get a jump on tomorrow's writing. Yeah. And, um, and that's the kind of structure of it. And I've, I've always been that way. I think part of it comes from starting my career in a journalistic mode. Is there's mm-hmm. a lot of lessons you learn when you're a journalist, which is primarily always deliver copy that is as clean as possible, that needs the minimum amount of editing, uh, you know, deadline is always king. Be be willing to kind of have a dialogue with your editors. Don't be too precious about your work. I think all of those are important lessons I learned as a as a journalist, which I've carried over into my into my prose writing career. Yeah. So I try to I just try to approach everything very much from a kind of professional point of view. You know, because this is my job. I do this is my. I know some people. Uh, write, you know, where they have a they have a day job and they write in the evenings. For them, obviously, it's it's a completely different process. And I used to do that very early on, right at the beginning of my career. I would, you know, stay up until stupid o'clock in the morning writing articles after having done my day job, <laughs> and then go into meetings the next day and falling asleep in meetings. Um, in fact, that was kind of the catalyst that made me decide to quit my day job and and go writing full time because I remember sitting in the office one day very distinctly um, on April the eighteenth. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I looked in the, I kind of looked at myself, reflected in the window, and I thought, you know, you're going to be doing this job for the next 20, 30 years, and this is not what you love. What you love is the writing, the thing you're doing in the evening. So just quit and just give it a go and see if you can make a go of it. And so I quit my job on April the 18th, and I take that day off every year like it's my independence day. That's I, awesome. I kind of like, you know, it's like, a, it's like my national holiday for me personally. I take time off. I have you know, I have beer and a pizza and I kind of salute myself and congratulations, you had another year done. And I think that mindset, that kind of professionalism mindset has served me very, very well. And I try to kind of stick to that and, and, and just continue forward in that mode, no matter what project it is I'm working on. That's cool. I love that idea. Um, I'm taking that day off every year. Um, yeah. So, uh, what are you going to do this year? Usually what I, you know, the thing about, I find about working from home is it's really hard to kind of switch off between the, you know, the, what is like writing gym and what is kind of not writing gym. I feel like somebody once said to me, writers are always writing. We're not always, we're just not always writing it down. So 
on some level, I think you're always kind of in the back of your mind, listening to the world going on around you and kind of sifting it for ideas and assembling stuff. And then an idea will pop up in your head in the middle of the night, right? You know, you've got that notepad by your bedside table, jot something down that you thought of in the middle of the night. That's, that's hard for me sometimes to switch off. I think it's, it's one of the, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing because sometimes I find myself lying awake in the middle of the night, just thinking about story ideas or a plot point that I can't, you know, quite work and you know, trying to work out some sort of thorny kind of issue. That's a thing I find myself constantly trying to build that gap because if you don't make space for yourself to just have normal, non-work, non-writing related stuff, you know, eventually the, you, you empty the tank. No. And, and you've got and you've got nothing to give. So when I take my um, my annual day off, um, on I mean that's not the only day I take. Off, <laughs> right? It's like it's not like I'm working 364 days a year and just take one off. Um, but when I take that particular day off, you know, I always uh, I don't switch my computer on at all. I don't look at my emails. I don't do anything that's even vaguely work related. You know, I might kind of go to the movies, read a book, catch up on a box set, play video games, you know, go out somewhere or just, you know, sometimes I, I, I love to go to the coast. It's one of the places I like to, my retreat where I go somewhere to kind of just unwind. Uh, I love the coast. I always find it very relaxing. So often on my day off, I'll, I'll just go to the beach uh, mm-hmm. and just try to distance myself as much as I possibly can from, from the work mode. Yeah, that's good. And healthy. Um, for the mindset, I think, and for, you know, as you said, we, we're kind of faced with more anxiety and, and bus- you know, the cult of busyness that we all daily get kind of, or can get sucked into, especially now that we're all, you know, just probably on the internet more. Because um, yeah. work all stuck at home. Work, work <laughs> always kind of expands to fill the space you give it, you know, yeah. so... Um, like just today, I finished before I started talking to you. I finished like forty-five minutes early, uh, and I thought, oh, I could take those forty-five minutes off before I, you know, before I do the interview. Uh, and then I thought, well, there is this other job you got to do. Let's just do that. And so I started, and I did forty-five minutes more work on something that I'm supposed to be working on tomorrow. When should, when afterwards, I was like, what I should have done is I should have just taken that forty-five minutes off and gone off for a walk around my garden. <laughs> yeah, and come back. Right. 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 Um, well, interesting. So uh, about your process, you know, when you're working on, you know, a kind of a high octane thriller, it, talk a little bit about the research process. Cause I know it's kind of a unique process for every writer. Um, and you have a, a, you know, a very unique perspective, but you know, are you, are you researching as you write? Are you taking time to research, you know, and take breaks and then write or you know every writer does it a little bit differently these are very and these are very unique processes um especially for this type of book so so talk a little bit about that maybe you know you have some unique sources and i generally when, when i'm at the stage where i'm developing the the story uh you know the, there are there are elements in it that i want to have locations and bits of technology and situations and things that I go, okay, this will be really cool. You know, I want to do a scene in this city. I want to talk about this particular thing. I want to, you know, talk about this location. I want to talk about a character who has this kind of skill set. So when I'm in the development stage, I try to research those things as much as I possibly can. And if that, if that involves me, you know, going to a place and actually kind of walking the territory, if I can do that, I try to do that. And if I can't, Mm. I try to find somebody who has and get kind of like a, you know, that granular 
telling detail. You know, it's, was it Stephen King always talks about the telling detail, right? Mm-hmm. The granularity to me is the thing that's important. Um, I try to make the details as authentic as I possibly can because there's always going to be somebody out there who knows the details of that particular thing and will happily point out if you get it wrong. And so I try to make that stuff feel as real as possible because a lot of the action in my books is very sort of heightened reality. And, you know, you might look at it and go, well, how, you know, he'd never be able to survive that car accident. And I have my hero kind of get out of the car and dust himself off and, you know, go off and do some more action pack stuff. And I think what the deal I kind of make is, is if, if you, if you let me get away with kind of crazy wild action, I'll make sure that absolutely everything is a hundred percent accurate as or at least as close as I can make it. Uh-huh. I think that's the, that's the kind of trade off, right? I think that, and I think that's, that tends to work to work pretty well. So I make sure that when I'm talking about events or technology or situations, they're either based on stuff from the real world or, or things that are kind of not too far into the future. You know, that, you know, if this is technology exists now, this is the next likely thing that might be coming out, or this is, this is a likely situation that could be evolving in the next kind of year or two. I try to make every book feel like it is set in the year you read it. Hmm. So almost like, you know, you could be sitting on a beach somewhere reading this book, and I want to give you the sense that somewhere else, where, somewhere else around on the other side of the world, this story is actually happening right now. Yeah, yeah, kind of that um, five minutes into the future. Uh, yeah, idea, you know, that Bill Gibson does, or William William Gibson, I should say. Um, I mean, he's Gibson's like a very strong influence on me. Uh, definitely, I would say he's on my list of of authors who have just, their work has definitely left like a kind of seismic impact on me as a writer. I mean, I remember, I think the first thing of his I ever read was, was count zero mm-hmm. and just the kind of the, the absolute confidence in his, in his just ability to craft the world. And that kind of, there's a, there's a kind of laconic sense to the way he tells story, but it has that kind of amazing granular detail. And I really admired that, that the, just the, the sort of, yeah, just the confidence is the word I keep coming back to. It just comes off the page to me. I and mean, I remember when I read that and when I went back and I read Neuromancer, and I, I remember hmm. thinking to myself, this, I want to be able to tell stories with that level of confidence. I want to be, I want to have that kind of energy and express myself that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, Neuromancers had a pretty interesting uh, effect on me as well, but... Um... It's just one of those, uh, and the, the interesting thing about how influential, um, that book is, is that, uh, it, it is really a heist, like a heist yeah. story. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like Arthur C. Clarke or whatever it's, uh, but it had such an influence on so many writers and it really is like a page turner. <laughs> mm. You know? I mean, it, it, you know, when you strip away, you know, those elements to it. I mean, it's the it's it's the structure of a kind of classic pulp sort of noirish, you know, as you say, heist novel. If you strip away all of the science fiction elements to it, you know, that's yeah. at, at its heart. That's what it is. And I also love those kind of books too. So for me, it's like you know, two of my favorite flavors together in one. Yeah, yeah, um, and so well written. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. I know, you know, we're, we're going over time and, and I appreciate you taking the time. I I could probably pick your brain all day long, but, um, you know, I know you write about, I mean, there's a cinematic quality to your writing as well. And, um, you know, again, that kind of, that heightened, that heightened reality, but, um, and you know, it, it, it's obvious that you've, you've combined all of these uh, influences into this, um, this work. And it's, uh, definitely something to behold, but yeah, talk a little bit about, yeah, I know you write sometimes on Twitter about, uh, you know, your, let's see, your writing soundtrack. Is it the hashtag writer soundtrack? I love that because I do ask so many writers about, you know, kind of if they listen to music, they prefer silence. And I know you've mentioned, um, kind of uh, your love of Hans Zimmer's soundtracks. I love so many of his. And, and one I'll mention is just like Interstellar, which is a- That's a great um, one, yeah. A very weird movie. But um, yeah, for writing, talk a little bit about that influence and, and maybe, you know, then you've written for some storied sci-fi franchises kind of, yeah. Um, it's a little bit about uh, that kind of cinematic okay. quality to your work. Well, again, early on in my career, um, I had the. I, I I thought I was going to write for television, so I I I steeped myself in in the in the structure of writing uh, fiction through through the lens of TV writing. And and one of the things I learned from the American model of TV writing, which is very different from the British model, is the idea of that kind of teaser and five act structure. Is that you have that opening teaser, then bang, it's you're you're into uh, the opening credits, and then you've got one act, and you've got commercials, another act, commercials. And the important thing was is that everything had to be built with a kind of mini cliffhanger at the end of each commercial mm-hmm. break because you don't want people changing channel, right? You want them to stay watching and they come back to your show. And that, I think, I, I folded into the way I write prose is I try to do that with every chapter of the book. I get people say to me, oh, I read your book in one night. You know, I, I couldn't put it down. And I read it all the way through. And I'm like, that's great because that's what I want you to do. I want you to feel <laughs> compelled, you know, because these are pacey, fast-paced, roller coaster ride books. And so – that uh, is conducive to the kind of storytelling I'm trying to do. So that was very much uh, a strong influence on that. Um, but in terms of like you know uh, writing for for the sci-fi franchises and 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 those kind of things, those were that was just kind of happy accident for me to fall into that sort of stuff mm. because because writing tie-in fiction is is a very different animal from writing your your original or self-originated prose fiction because you're writing essentially in somebody else's universe you know you're 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 given a box of toys and and they're cool toys and they may be toys that you're that you've loved yourself because you're a big fan of whatever the franchise is and and the the deal they make is they said well you can take these toys out of the box and you can play around with them and you can tell a great story but at the end of the day you have to put the toys back in the box 
and you have to <laughs> and you have to give the box back and you can't break the toys and you can't put sticky fingerprints all over them you know you've got to mm. give them back and so i've talked to some writers who say well isn't that kind of creatively bereft it's like you know how do you how do you invent anything interesting if you know you can't change anything and i say well that's no different from you know you taking a job on an ongoing television series you might not have created those characters but you can still tell an interesting story with them and i think one of the things that pros can do really well with characters from another milieu is that they can give you an internal viewpoint you know you can watch every episode of star trek ever made but you never really get to see what's going on inside captain kirk's head mm-hmm. but in the novel you could go there and you could exp- you could experience what it's like for him to be doing what he's doing and you could look at that character and you can unfold these characters and you can shine a light on them in a different way that will reveal aspects of the character that maybe they can't be revealed in in the source material and that's really fun especially when you're dealing with characters who are beloved uh, and are very well known it's 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 really interesting rich territory to mine um and it's fun for me as somebody who is a fan of these things you know i would never write about uh, a fictional universe that i didn't really care about because mm-hmm. to me i think it's, it's if i don't care about these characters if i don't connect to them why would I want to tell that story? And anybody reading that story is going to be someone who cares about those characters. And they'll know that I, as the author, don't care about them. So every time I've written a tie-in, it's been about a character or a universe or a milieu that I just find exciting. Uh, and I kind of transfer that, uh, that excitement about it, that affection for that world, hopefully into, into telling an interesting story. Yeah. Love it. Well, before we wrap up with any advice you have uh, for your fellow scribes uh, on how to to stay motivated, um, maybe uh, talk a little bit about any any authors that are kind of uh, sticking with you right now or, or on your kind of nightstand that you're reading and loving. Or okay, there's um, uh, one of my give a shout out here to one of my colleagues, uh, a chap called Adam Hamdy, who's just written uh, a really great novel called Black 13, very much in the kind of same wheelhouse as, as the Mark Dane novels. I really enjoyed that. He's a, he's a really terrific writer. And he's, again, it's just fast paced clips along a really sort of exciting kind of stuff. Hmm. I enjoyed that. What else have I read? I've just started reading a book that's, that's not going to be out for a little while. It's a, a military history book. It's called Harrier 809. And it's written by a guy called, Roland White and Roland specializes in writing these books about obscure little bits of kind of cold war military history. Hmm. And this one, this one's about the, uh, the Falklands war. Uh, but what, what he has a real great gift for is, is the ability to kind of take real world events that you think would be kind of a bit dry and stayed and the kind of stuff where you think, well, this looks, this is going to be very technical and very kind of like lumpy and slow paced, but he injects a kind of thriller sense of velocity into the story so you end up reading the, about these true life adventures but he really puts a sort of sense of excitement into it and i think that's that's unique and that's a lot of fun hmm. so so i was enjoying that what else have i read recently are you talking about joshua hood's book the uh, the treadstone resurrection i just read yeah. that. yeah 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 that was really that was really interesting because again i mean i'm a massive fan of ludlam you know that that's i would i always say like my kind of thriller pole stars uh it's it's ludlam clancy and fleming the ones I always, you know, I hope that I could, uh, you know, I, I, I would yeah. love to consider myself as trying to emulate the, you know, their kind of skill set. So it's really interesting to see somebody picking up um, the, that part of the Bourne 
universe and, and, and trying to unfold it in a new and interesting way. So yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I bet you and Josh would have a, a pretty cool conversation if you haven't met him in real life. He's a super down to earth, uh, gentleman. I think I have, I have a couple of his, I think his other book is, is um, yeah. Call by Fire. Is it? I can't remember the title of it. Uh-huh. The first, yeah. His first one. Yeah. I, I have that on my, on my, on my Kindle, my e-reader. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, and the other one I've got on my to read pile, which I haven't started yet. Finally, we're talking about Gibson is Gibson's new one agency. So oh that, yeah. I haven't, I haven't got to that one yet though. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I gotta, I gotta find that also probably not hard uh, to find, but um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Last fun question before we wrap. If you could choose one author from any era for an all-expense-paid dinner to your favorite restaurant, who would you take and where would you take them? Okay, it definitely would be Ludlam, Robert Ludlam. <laughs> um, because I think, because uh, I just admire the guy's work ethic so much and I would love to have had the opportunity to just kind of sit sit by him and just, you know, go on, Rob, just just tell me about how you do your thing <laughs> and just listen, just soak it up, right? Where would I take him? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think... We'll, we'll, we'll assume the pandemic has passed and all the restaurants are open again. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great uh, chain of restaurants in, in London. Um, and what was it? It's not, oh, I want to call it mac and cheese, but it's not mac and cheese. It's like, oh, I, for, I, I forget what it is, it's a, but it's a, it's a chain of Scottish-themed restaurants. So everything they do is kind of steak or salmon or whiskey-based. And they, they, have, they have two or three branches mm. in London, and uh, they're really, really great. So I'd probably like, pop in there and, and, you know, maybe over sort of like, you know, salmon and whiskey and, and uh, have a, just have a chat to Robert Ludlam about his process. That would be really cool. Nice, nice. Whiskey with Ludlum. Can't go wrong with that. Sounds like a... Uh alternate universe, uh, short story. And, um, well, um, yeah, so, uh, we'll point at, of course, your home base there, jswallow.com. I'll drop a link to that. And I'll also drop a link to the, uh, to the series. And, uh, the latest is Rogue. Um, it is the fifth novel in the best-selling Mark Dan, um, thriller series. And, um, if you're catching this before, May 28th. Uh, it is available for pre-order, of course. And um, yeah, you can find all that information in the show notes. I'll link to everything there. Well, I will link to um, also your Twitter because that's very entertaining. <laughs> is there anywhere else you want to point uh No, that's listeners? pretty much it. It's, it's, uh, um, I try to keep my social media down to just like the Twitter thing. So that's that's where I am most of the time posting on yeah. there. And um, and, nice. and, and again, I try to update the website and there's a blog on there as well. I update you know, a couple of times a month. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Rogue uh, follows Mark Dan, Britain's answer to Jason Bourne, and a little more than a, uh, sorry, a, a more than a little bit Bond, of course, that Ian Fleming uh, reference there. It is, uh, yeah, basically uh, the Daily Mail called it Britain's answer to Jason Bourne, an ultra-fast-paced worldwide chase to stop a madman while leaving the reader breathless. And uh, yeah, um, congrats on the work, my friend. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and, w- and once again, thank you for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it's no chore to come on and chat to somebody about <laughs> w- the work I do. I love, I love, just, I love my job and I love, the, I love being able to talk about it.
I could probably pick your brain all day. Um, so you, you are going to have to come back. Uh, so if you had one just pearl about, um, yeah, how to keep going, how to keep the ink flowing, how to keep the cursor moving for, for listeners, what do you got for us? Okay, like the, the, the quintessential question about how to stay <laughs> motivated, right? Yeah. Is I guess um, it's, it's really easy to kind of get lost, lost in the weeds, you know, is that you, you find yourself in that situation. I, I always call it having bookhead, where it's like you're, everything you're doing is usually the thing you get in the middle of the book where everything you see and everything you do is just through this fog of pages and half-written ideas. And it's very difficult to kind of disengage from, from the, the work of the story. And sometimes that's the worst place to be because you lose contact with the world around you and, and, and you, you, you lose that essential fuel that's coming in to kind of continue to push your story ideas forward. So I always say when I feel like that, that's the time where I, when I deliberately, as much as it might hurt, disengage, go for a walk, go to the beach, just get out of the room and clear the, clear the mist from your head. Yeah. Remember to do that. It's like, you know, remember to breathe, remember to stop and eat. These things don't sound like important bits of advice, but sometimes we really do forget. I've had the day where, you know, I, I sit down in front of my computer and um, the worst thing is, 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 is when my wife isn't at home, if she's visiting her family or something, It'll get to kind of like nine o'clock at night and I'll have a, and I'll suddenly realize I have a splitting headache and it's like, why do I have a headache? It's because you haven't eaten all day, you idiot, because you've just been <laughs> focused on this thing and, and that's not good for anybody. So, you know, if you need an external device to do it, set an alarm on your computer. I have one of those kitchen timers and I said, nice. you know, if I, if I know I'm going to be in the middle of, I'll set the kitchen timer for a couple of hours and that will ring and it'll be like, just stop what you're doing, dumbass, and go and have a cup of tea. Because it's so easy to get lost in it. And just remember, remember to build that space in for yourself. Love it. Yeah, that's a great place to wrap. James, thanks so much for taking the time. Please do visit us again. And congrats on all of your successes, my friend. Oh, my pleasure, man. I really enjoyed chatting too. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Bye.